Hello, and welcome to the YGBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I am Mara, second-year PhD student in microbiology. And I'm Sam, first-year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. And we are happy to be back on our normal schedule, yep. recording another podcast now in February. So, Sam, let's get started. What do you have for us today? I feel like recently we've been covering a lot of research related to opioid use disorder, and this week is no different. And, you know, this is understandable given the rapid growth of the disorder as a national health crisis since the early 2000s. That said, our first study was led by VA Connecticut Healthcare System and researchers from the Yale School of Medicine, and the aim of the study was to observe the association between genetic or environmental factors such as education level, adverse childhood experiences, and other relevant psychiatric conditions, and the risk of opioid use disorder. And when I say opioid use disorder, this is essentially the risk of becoming dependent on opioids. And the study says it aims to close the gap in the research uh, and observe the genetic susceptibility for opioid use disorder in the context of environmental and psychosocial factors. Interesting. So what in- exactly did they find? So the data studied was from a previous Yale study conducted in conjunction with researchers from University of Pennsylvania that studied substance use genetics. Study participants included 1,958 adults with European ancestry, And according to the study, it collected polygenic risk scores based on a large-scale multi-treat analysis of genome-wide association studies of opioid use disorder. After data analysis, there were two main findings. First, opioid use disorder polygenic risk scores were positively associated with risk of opioid dependence, even when other confounding variables such as sociodemographic and psychiatric risk factors were accounted for. And second, that education and PTSD moderate the effect of opioid use disorder polygenic risk scores on risk for opioid dependence. This this last finding basically means that, you know, failing to graduate from high school or even finish a bachelor's degree were strongly associated with an increased risk of opioid overdose death. And people with higher opioid use disorder polygenic risk scores have a higher risk of opioid dependence. Interesting. So what are some limitations of this study and how can we move forward? Because I remember you saying that they used uh, for participants, for people of mostly European ancestry, for example. I imagine that placed a lot of limitations on the results. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there could be some questions, you know, beyond that about the causal and temporal relationships between the factors studied and development of opioid use disorder. So thinking about when people actually developed OUD, oftentimes we are thinking that maybe this isn't so much of a limitation because people developed OUD, you know, post high school um, and during the time when you are, you know, you're receiving your education or going through things that, you know, might lead you to develop PTSD. So there are, there are really um, some ways in which we can feel quite sure about um, the temporal and causal relationships between our factors studied and OUD. But, I mean, as always, we will see. Um, but other than that, the sample studied, as you said, was not of diverse ancestry. And the data from the participants also relies on the accuracy of what was being self-reported. Um, 
But moving forward, some next steps that we could do would be to identify individuals with high risk of opioid use disorder based on those polygenic risk scores um, and just, you know, target them to make sure we can provide them with resources. We could also work to increase retention in schools and be more careful when prescribing opioids to individuals with PTSD. All of that sounds very reasonable to me, and I hope that public health perspective on opioid use disorder will change to more preventative care as well, which is, I think, is not talked enough about yeah. at this point. No, I, I definitely agree, and I actually thought that the um, association between education level and risk of opioid use disorder was really interesting because I think that that is a very important factor for a lot of things, like... Um, also depression and other factors where that maybe might relate to self-esteem or you know future income level i'm curious were they controlling for income level at all yes they actually were um there were certain factors like quality of life and income level that um they chose not to focus on and were controlling for okay no that sounds great yeah so moving on mara what do you have for us what is the backstory of your research? Yeah, so the research that I want to focus on is brought to us by Yale Cancer Center. It was published in the Journal of Rising Oncology, and our first author was Dr. Amin Nassar. And he was looking at how we can treat non-small cell lung cancers. Now, before we dive into it, I want to just like define some terms I'll be using a lot so that and that's CLC, those cancers. Um, they're basically a type of lung cancer. Um, it is an umbrella term um, covering several types of cancers. They develop from lung tissue, usually result from heavy smoking. And while they are treatable, uh, it's still a big issue for current public health situation. Now, another thing that we want to focus on is the subpopulation of those cancers, which are positive for a mutation in EAGFR, which is epidermal growth factor receptor. So it is a type of receptor on cells that naturally helps them to grow and divide. But in mutation, it happens in this gene, it can lead to the gene functioning properly, perhaps too much, resulting in too much of a grow, which, as we know, is a characteristic of cancerous cells. So again... Um, the research focused on a non-small cell lung cancer with this particular mutation. Cool. So how did they approach the problem? So what they did, they wanted to compare the different approaches that are currently known, but we don't know what is the optimal choice for patients. They were comparing immunotherapy, illustrated by drug Durvalumab, <laughs> to targeted therapy, which was targeted specifically the EGFR mutation. Uh, called osimedrit. That okay. We'll just call it targeted therapy. <laughs> Pardon my pronunciation. I'm not a doctor. Now um, they also focus on a very specific point at which the therapy is implemented, uh, which is after uh, chemotherapy and radiation, uh, which is also called colonization therapy. So what they did, they took data that was already available at a retrospective study. They used data of patients from 2015 until 2022. And they took those patients, stage 3, non-small cell lung cancer with HEOFAR mutation after chemotherapy and radiation, separated those into three groups, the ones that took immunotherapy, target therapy, or neither, 
um, and then they basically evaluated the outcomes. So what they discovered is that 86% of patients who were treated with target therapy for EGFR actually lived at least two years without disease worsening, which is significantly higher than patients who were treated only with immunotherapy-focused drug um, or patients who did not took either of the treatments. And um, they also noticed that there were less severe side effects associated with the targeted therapy as compared to immune therapy. That is so interesting. So what is the future of this discovery? Well, the researchers talking about continuing the experiments and figuring out the absolute optimal way to treat patients with this kind of therapies. And also for this research, they were focusing on the non-operable tumors, so the ones that can't be surgically cut out. They also did previous research in which they focused on the tumors that can be surgically removed. And it also showed that the therapies that are targeting EGFR mutations are more efficient in recovery. So it's really interesting to me. It's moving in a new direction for actual patient treatment strategies. Um, and I'm sure at some point we'll learn more and more like that for all different cancer types. Yeah, no, absolutely. I always think it's really fascinating to hear about, you know, the really hard biology discoveries and then hearing about how those discoveries can be applied to, you know, create those patient treatments. It's, I feel like for the layman like me, it's easier to see the importance of it and like have a more concrete understanding of, you know, why we do the things we do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, this was our two only articles for this week because it's been kind of slow and we understand it's end of winter. It's okay. No, I don't understand. You'll need to come back more research. Prato! <laughs> well, wonderful. If you guys want to see more research, then be sure to vote for Samantha as an ex-president of Yelp. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I... Peter Salovey, 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 watch out. <laughs> it's okay. Salovey the bleeding. Spot is there for you. That is so true. That is so true. Okay. Without any more political announcements, um, thank you guys for being with us for this episode. And we will see you next week. Yeah. See you next week. Hopefully. Bye. Bye.